Welcome to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy with help from evidence-based advice from our physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers. University Distinguished Professor Susan Burgesson has dedicated her career to trying to understand the complex mechanisms underlying alcohol use disorder. In 2020, she received a five-year, $7.25 million grant to develop a novel treatment for alcohol use disorder. She's our guest on this episode and talks to us about addiction and alcohol use disorder and why it's treated as an illness. Dr. Burgesson, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your expertise, and what you do at the Health Sciences Center? I'm a Kayla Whitelaw Endowed Professor in Cell Biology and Biochemistry at School of Medicine. And I'm also an Associate Dean in the Graduate School, as well as the Director of the Biotechnology Program. My research is on alcohol use disorder. That's something I've been working on since I was an undergrad, so it's been 40 years and I'm currently funded to develop medications, and we have one that is going through the FDA approval process. So I'm really excited about that. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Can you tell us a little bit or a little bit more about your research? You said you started as an undergrad. Tell us what that process has been and where you are now. Well, even as an undergrad, I realized that alcohol use disorder is extremely complex that it affects people differently. It's really devastating to families and to society in general. And at that time, we were really trying to figure out why alcohol withdrawal was a medical emergency and what could be done about it. We knew it had genetic components because we were breeding animals. We'd breed the high responders to high responders and low responders to low responders, and you could get this divergence. So it was really clear that you could genetically separate the high and low alcohol withdrawal symptoms. And that's true for drinking and other what we call endophenotypes of alcohol use disorder. And in about the early 2000s, you know, that was the time of big data. So people were looking at transcriptomics, which is you can measure all of the gene expression in a tissue or a body or blood or whatever. And so we started looking at what does alcohol do to the brain? And surprisingly, we found that it affected the innate immune system. So it was there was an inflammatory response when you drink alcohol. And, you know, the people in the field would find their favorite genes and say, oh, yes, that validates my hypothesis, right? But we started thinking about things in a pathway manner. And so the next question we asked is, what can we do to modify a pathway? And of course, there weren't very many medications out there that were anti-inflammatory other than NSAIDs and over-the-counter medications. And we knew that that wasn't the key, right? But there was research that had started showing that minocycline, which is an antibiotic, actually had all these anti-inflammatory properties. And so I thought, what the heck, we'll try it. And people thought that was nuts until we found that it not only reduced withdrawal symptoms, but also reduced alcohol consumption. 
in both animals that were binge drinkers and animals that were physically dependent. And so, you know, in, in any research field, rodents to humans is a big translational jump. And immune system-wise, that's particularly true. And so we, we meaning my collaborator, Brittany Bacchus over at TTU, and I made a pig model. So pigs will drink, they'll drink so much you have to protect them from drinking until they die. And we found that our medication worked equally well there. So we were really confident that we were onto something that was going to have a higher probability of working in humans. And of course, obviously, the next step is NIH has to think so as well. <laughs> and so we actually were asked to apply for a, a RFA, which is a request for applications. And it, it, it was fit for us. And so we were funded originally for about $2 million. And then now we're doing toxicology and the initial stages of first in human tests. And so we're really excited about that. And that's a collaboration with Dr. Ted Reed, who helped me modify the minocycline so that it lost its antibiotic properties. You can imagine that you don't want to take an antibiotic for a really long time because you're going to mess up your your GI um, microbiota. So, you know, we need all those bacteria to help us digest our food. So he helped me together with a chemist that he knew, Dr. Mayank Shastri. And then we tested all the modifications. And so they functioned as well in both mice and pigs. And so that's where we're at. We're looking at, you know, a health disorder that has very few options. I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous has been around for a very long time. And people relapse over and over again and it's been proven to help many people survive alcohol use disorder but the medications out there uh, are not particularly great for reducing alcohol consumption and you know the the medical emergency is they have drugs that stop the withdrawal symptoms but you're still addicted to alcohol so you mentioned your NIH grant how is addiction a healthcare issue? So addictions are in many forms. It could be sex addiction, eating disorders, substance use disorders, which includes everything from tobacco to opioids. And, you know, there's a lot of news related to the opioid epidemic, but it's actually still more people die from alcohol use disorder, and it costs much, much more per capita for alcohol problems than it does for all drugs besides smoking combined. Smoking kills about 8 million people a year and mostly due to cancer and other issues. Everybody thinks about, well, alcohol is legal, right? Oh, it can't hurt anybody. It hurts more people than all of those drugs combined except for nicotine. How does addiction affect all of us, whether or not we would say that we're addicted or that we would be addicted? So on an individual basis, the alcohol use disorder is a diagnosable, as is substance use disorder. You go to the doctor, they do both blood tests as well as asking questions. 
and you can be diagnosed. The, the diagnosis comes from the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic statistical manual that doctors use in their differential diagnoses. And so on the individual level, that can be very disruptful to their life because oftentimes the the drugs that they're using or alcohol that they drink um, interfere in their life in ways that ruins relationships, it can ruin their ability to hold a, successfully hold a job. Um, it, you know, it might reduce their social interactions um, with individuals. But as it becomes diagnosable, and I and I like to, you know, talk to people about how it really is a brain disorder. So whether you're taking alcohol or other drugs, you know, we're all naive to begin with, right? Well, you know, I'll try it. And then some individuals say, you know, I kind of like that, right? And then they go to the point where they get to where I want it, and it becomes a reinforcer. And at some point, which is biologically driven, it's your genetics plus the, you know, the gene expression as well as the brain neural network reconnections um, cement it to where you crave it and now you actually need it. In the case of alcohol, you might need it to prevent yourself from dying because alcohol withdrawal is worse than withdrawal from other drugs. Uh, Opioids are terrible withdrawal, but they generally don't kill you. But, you know, people die from alcohol withdrawal. And how does addiction affect family members? So, you know, you you see them doing things that are unhealthy, and it's really hard to see your loved ones do that. But they might also steal from you, lie to you, disrupt your lives in, in ways that are really hard. It's hard for a parent to say, you know, I'm not going to let you live here anymore. And the tough love aspect of addiction can cause a lot of problems in families and and even affect neighbors it affects their friendships so the the people who love them and care about them are negatively impacted and society as a whole is because alcohol use disorder is a 250 billion dollar problem for society and that is actually more cost than what it costs to buy the alcohol in the first place so it's, you know, a negative sum game. I'm, I'm just curious, since you're mentioning all this, is alcohol poison? Yes. Actually, I teach that in medical school. There are other alcohols that are poison as well. Methanol is a common one, but ethylene glycol and isopropanol, just because ethanol can be drunk and you can enjoy it, you know, responsibly in high doses it is a depressant so you can you can die from an acute overdose and this happens in college where you have uh, more commonly in college where you have kids on their own for the first time and they want to keep up with those who maybe have been drinking for a while or they're you know dared to do something and it's too much and you know they they don't wake up in the morning, or they may actually aspirate, vomit, and choke to death, which is also pretty common. 
But yes, if somebody is passed out, it's really a sign they need medical help. Now, what are other misconceptions about people and addiction or alcohol and other types of addiction? Like, can people quit through sheer willpower? So when you get to a brain disorder, that is exceptionally difficult. But it does depend on your genetics, right? So if you have all the decks stacked against you, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of alcohol consumption to the point where you don't have control over it anymore. You will also see individuals that have been drinking, maybe risky drinking, all of their life, and they just quit, right? And it's not a, it's not a problem for them. But I think that's what makes it difficult for people to understand. If you haven't had that really hard time quitting something, it's hard to empathize with somebody who is ruining their life by continuing to drink. And I think in kids of where their parents have problems, it's like, you know, they're they're wrecking their family and it's not about them just being able to quit. It's not a moral dilemma. It might, you know, it might be in some religions a sin to get intoxicated, but that doesn't mean that that's, you know, from a uh, medical standpoint, how you end up helping yourself. So Alcoholics Anonymous um, helps the willpower issue by giving you a sponsor, somebody who's already been through the process and has successfully stayed sober. They will be there. So if you're, you know, going to relapse, you call your your buddy, right? And so, you know, that's that's a positive reinforcer. Instead of getting the alcohol, you've got your buddy there to help you through the hard times. What we are trying to do is get a medication that will reduce those cravings. And so far, most of the drugs that have been FDA approved for alcohol use disorder don't work very well. I read a biography a few months ago and this author said that his father was an alcoholic. This was back in the 50s, 60s. And that his mother would make the dad take a pill and that that's what stopped the alcoholism. But I'm wondering if it was just some sort of pill that made him sick or something. I don't know. Exactly. Okay. So it's called disaf- disulfiram. It's called antabuse is the common name. If you take it ahead of time, you will get sick. They have used that, and there's one clinic in Washington that I know of right now that still does. And what they do is they have high-end patients that come to this clinic, and they give them their favorite drink, and they deliberately make them sick. So if you're a physician or a pilot or something like that where you're mandated to stay sober, it works well for them. But for most people, it doesn't. They drink in spite of the fact that they took that medication. And what the problem is, is that it causes a lot of liver damage. So they don't generally use it in many circumstances anymore. And the other issue is, is that, you know, the husband had to allow his wife to actually ensure that he got it. And what happens most of the time is they decide they're going to drink and they don't take it. Right. Because those cravings are terrible. And they can last 
10 years. You'll hear of people that were 20 years sober and they relapse. As an aside, I remember when I was pregnant and I ordered a pecan pie and they had, they put bourbon in the whipped cream and I smelled that and it just made me so, so sick. Mm. I thought that's what I related it to when I was reading it. They must have had the same reaction where he just felt sick and didn't want any, because I didn't want any alcohol or smell it, want to smell it for a while. Well, and the the nice things is that your genetics can actually protect you against alcohol use disorder. For example, I happen to be, I'm not a teetotaler, but I don't drink a lot. But, you know, if I have a half a beer, for example, I get tired and, you know, kind of withdrawn. And the individuals that are most susceptible to alcohol use disorder are those who are the life of the party. They don't feel intoxicated and it reduces their social anxiety. Um, and you know that that's the only thing that they've really connected to a strong predictor. Now there are many genes that have been identified, but you can't just say, oh, if you have that one gene, you're an alcohol use disorder risk. It turns out there's, you know, probably 4,000 small effect size genes that contribute, and it's what hand were you dealt? So those who have all the predisposition alleles for those have a higher risk. And the risk for alcohol use disorder is about 50% genetics and 50% environment. So you can have your environment stacked against you because poverty and stress and PTSD abuse as a child or early adult are things that make you more susceptible. And it's not fair, but it that is a problem. And so I'd really like to see people have the same empathy for those who have alcohol and substance use disorder as, as if they had cancer or something else. Because they didn't really do it to themselves. 85% of Americans drink alcohol and, you know, probably 60 of them drink irresponsibly at times. Um, yet, you know, only about 10% of the population becomes alcohol use disorder. And that reminds me, the other question you asked, what is a misperception? So the misperception of people with alcohol use disorder is that they don't drink as much as anybody else because they generally hang out with others. And they'll say, well, I don't drink as much as, you know, this one or that one. And so they don't really know. Sometimes it's not until, you know, their liver enzymes are goofed up that their doctor will say well do you drink alcohol and they'll figure out they're actually doing damage and by that time you know if they have that predisposed risk it may be that it's too late and they really need to get help because it is difficult to stop taking a drug including alcohol if you are addicted to that substance but it's different for different substances and it's dependent on the strength of the the molecule how long you've been taking it and what doses are you taking it well which leads us to the um, next question are there substances that people can quit cold turkey like smoking or vaping so the answer to that is yes but the longer answer is that not everybody can so it there there's a genetic component and like i said dose and length of time um and 
people shouldn't quit alcohol without making sure they have somebody there because if you quit cold turkey it can kill you Um, how does how how does that happen why the withdrawal symptoms are so bad they just have really severe withdrawal symptoms and you know the same is true for opioid withdrawal it's just less likely to kill you but but alcohol is one where it, it can kill you can you explain a little bit more about the withdrawal symptoms is it like a really really bad hangover or worse than that hangover is like an acute withdrawal right you get a headache if you drank again it would reduce that and therein lies the cycle of i i i'll try it i liked it i want it i need it right because there's a large number of individuals who say that they've continued for many years in alcohol use disorder simply to survive they know they have to have a drink in the morning and they sneak liquor to work so that they can literally function because their hands tremble you know they they can have hallucinations the seizures can kill them you know what would be the ideal way to treat addiction i mean other than the the medication that you're working towards how can somebody get help now so alcohol use disorder in the dsm-5 manual has 11 criteria and it's a spectrum disorder. So you could have a mild to a severe alcohol use disorder. And so I would recommend to anyone that they share with their doctor that they're concerned about themselves. And I'm hopeful that doctors ask the right questions because it is true that having your doctor simply say, I think you need to cut down or can you try to cut down and then keep at it you know, from appointment to appointment, it can actually be very successful. So that's called a a brief intervention, right? You just tell them, look, you're drinking too much. And they go, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. And many of them actually don't, or they'll argue with you that, you know, I can drink, I can handle it, and everybody else can see it, and they can't. For other drugs, quitting can be as easy as going cold turkey. Now, People who do that when they've smoking, which has a really high addiction index, right? About 75% of people who start smoking become addicted at some point or another. So having a drug like Chantix, which helps you reduce your cravings for nicotine, or having a patch where you wean yourself off usually works pretty well. You know, for other drugs, like I said, I would I would make an appointment with your doctor and say, look, I think I have a problem. What do you recommend? Because I think some individuals really need to check into a 30-day or longer rehab facility and others, you know, with the support of their family. And success can matter. Oftentimes, people with alcohol use disorder end up in codependent relationships, not only with their friends, but with their family. And so you think, well, your spouse might be supportive of that, but maybe the spouse is used to having that individual have difficulties, so they have more independence. And as the person comes out and decides what caused this and how do, you know, how do I get better and how do I want to change my life, it can change their relationships. And sometimes relationships don't survive that, you know? So how do we support family members or friends or loved ones who have these addictions? 
That is a difficult question because I think it really depends on individuals, right? First, what is it they're using? What is their drug of choice? And how do they use it? And how, how is it impacting their life? Nobody can change anyone else's behavior except for the person who has it. And the best way for that is for them to recognize they have a problem. And they don't know that it's always successful if somebody just tells them, you know, I think you have a problem, you should do whatever. But getting them the information, for example, many people don't know what it takes to be diagnosed with a substance or alcohol use disorder. And simply giving them the list of questions and saying, here's the criteria. This, if you have two of these, you're mild. You have many of these, it's severe. And maybe they'll have an aha moment, you know. Or you can reinforce that, you know, I really wished we could have done X, but you didn't show up because of this. And, you know, how can I help you? And then... The flip side of that is sometimes you help too much, and then it's really difficult for parents, especially wealthy parents, who want to make sure their kid has a roof over their head or a car to drive or whatever. And there are many examples of hundreds of thousands of dollars spent, and it's not helping the person because they don't really have consequences. Is there anything else you would like to add? Well, for those individuals who have a loved one, there is help for you too. And this is not my expertise, but Al-Anon and other sorts of support groups will allow you to hear about what other people have gone through and what has worked for them. And what works is probably very individual to your particular loved one, but it's always helpful to have information where you have tools in your toolbox to help your your loved one rather than just trying to do it on your own. And I think one of the reasons people try to do it on their own is simply because they're embarrassed. They don't want people to know, well, my kid has a drug or alcohol use disorder problem, you know, and I, I can't say I blame them, but it, but it isn't helpful in the long run. So I guess we just need to remind ourselves that it's, it's an illness. It is an illness. It is a brain disorder and it is, categorized that way in the medical field. Well, Dr. Burgesson, thank you again for coming on our podcast and talking to us about this. Well, thank you for having me. I had a good time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss our next episode. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tier Castillo, Susana Cisneros, and me, Melissa Whitfield.